for? What are the kind of things you attach your hope to? What are the kind of goals and rewards that you try and keep in your mind's eye and in thinking about those goals, those rewards, those hopes that helps you keep going through day-to-day life? Effectively, what are you living for? If you're thinking about something day-to-day, that's what you're hoping for, living life towards. That's what you're living for, isn't it? What are you hoping for? What are you waiting for? Honestly, day-to-day, what does keep you going? Some common answers would probably be things like The weekend, famous song, Living for the weekend. Uh, Maybe it's holidays. Maybe you're just waiting right now, even this week, for Christmas. Two weeks off, if you're lucky. Maybe you're waiting for retirement. Just can't wait for career to be over. Get to those days. Uh, My generation has explicitly been told, live for your 20s. We have a very low view of post-29 life. We're told to live for right here, right now. This is it. Uh, I don't know what you're hoping for. Maybe in the day-to-day, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you're working hard. Maybe your daily hope is just rest. 6.30, sofa, feet up, cup of tea, Great British Bake Off on iPlayer. I'm there. That's what keeps me going. That's how I make it through the afternoon. Maybe it's middle of the week. It's, it's Wednesday afternoon. Work is hard. The week seems long. But Saturday morning is in view. Lying. Croissant. Bike ride. It's there. You can almost taste it. And that's what helps you day in, day out, get through the week. Uh, there's a friend of me and Grace's who uh, lives in London. And he is really honest about the fact that he is just living for holidays. He works as hard as he can so that he can go away as often as he can. And while he's working as hard as he can, all that keeps him going is thinking about going away. His dream is to make enough money that he can not work as often as he does. That's what he's living for. Holidays. Can't wait to get away. For all of us then, what are you hoping for? What are you waiting for? What are you living for? What keeps you going? The reality of those things that we're hoping for is we hope that when we get there, when we get to that Saturday morning, to that holiday, that we're going to get some joy and some happiness, some satisfaction. That's what we want from our hopes, isn't it? That's what we want them to deliver. That's why we're hoping for them. They're going to deliver me some joy and happiness. Here's the thing. I think most of us, most of those answers are pretty tangible things, aren't they? They're pretty here and now. Nearly all of them will be earthly, if we answered honestly. Most of them pretty tangible things, pretty close at hand. We can imagine them. We've probably even done some of them before. They're there. And I wonder, why are we so preoccupied with these earthly things, these tangible realities? Why are we just hoping for Saturdays? And I think the answer is pretty simple. They're there. They're near. We know what Saturdays are like. I can smell and taste and see and touch the things that day to day I hope for. I know what Christmas is like. I can... I can taste the turkey that I'm hoping for. It's there, it's real, it's close, it's at hand. And I want us to think about those present realities that we're hoping, kind of like a one-pound coin. Now think about a one-pound coin. If you hold a one-pound coin close enough to your eye, all you see is the one-pound coin. If you are even looking up at the sun and you put that one-pound coin close enough, you can block out the sun with a one-pound coin because it's so near to your vision. Now at that moment, the sun is still bigger, still real, still true. But actually, the nearness of this little coin blocks out what is immeasurably greater. I think that's what's happening with present realities, even with the the hopes of Saturdays and and good normal things like that. that. Because they're near to us, because we can smell and taste and touch them, actually, they impinge on us. 
They block our vision. They stop us seeing what's further ahead and hoping in what we should hope for. Hoping in the kind of stuff that's really going to help see us through nitty-gritty days. Hoping in stuff that actually is going to satisfy, actually delivers on joy. In the way that all of those other things we might hope for doesn't. Daniel tonight throws the coin out the window, plants the sun right in our faces. We are going to look tonight in Daniel at the end of all things, the resurrection of everybody who's ever lived, ever. This is big reality. But actually, I think Daniel's putting right before us the stuff that we should be hoping in, the realities that should be there in our mind's eye, helping us press on through Wednesday afternoon after Wednesday afternoon after Wednesday afternoon, the things we should be hoping for. And he's actually going to show us where true joy, satisfaction, happiness, comfort can be found. So let's turn together. If you've got the sheets, it's just on the front page of the sheets. If you're pew Bibling, um, Daniel chapter 12 is in the Bible. So let's read together Daniel chapter 12. It's carrying straight on from 11. At that time, Michael... The great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, shall be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase in knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked and there before me stood two others one on this side of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, it will be for time, times and half a time when the power of the holy people has been finally broken. All these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. This is God's word. Let's pray together before we come to think a bit more about it. 
Heavenly Father, our prayer again tonight is Psalm 119 verse 18, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Father, would you, uh, through this chapter of your word, show us things of you that would amaze us, things that would serve to make us joyful in Jesus. Father, would you, as we spend time together in your word tonight, incline our hearts together towards Christ, towards what is good and noble. Teach us tonight, Lord, to hope in the things that you have made available to us that are glorious and good. For the sake of your son, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. All right, so we're straight in there in Daniel with some pretty big realities, aren't we? Straight in, verses 1 to 4, suffering, the end of all days, the resurrection of the dead, judgment, it's all there. And my hope is that tonight we can put that stuff where it belongs, in the forefront of our mind, as our proper and true hope, and I hope that changes our perspective day to day. Um, As we can see, it builds straight on from last week. It begins at that time, Uh, I think referencing back to chapter 11, verse 40, the time of the end. It's just carrying on and capping off uh, what Liam left us with last week. Uh, And in a way, it kind of follows on. And if that was the end times, this is the end of the end. This is the very final bit. It caps off all of Daniel's visions. And all of that really happens in 1 to 4. And in a sense, 5 to 11 kind of repeats some of the truths of 1 to 4. They center around these two questions. One in verse 6, how long? And then in verse 8, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? But really, there's not too much in the way of new content in 5 to 13. They reinforce 1 to 4. So we'll use them to help us unpack 1 to 4 a lot. And then we'll finish up by uh, looking at the words with which Daniel closes his book. The final words God gave to him in this book. So, Daniel 12, verses 1 to... We'll start by looking at 1 to 3. And then we'll do uh, the rest. So, 1 to 3, the end of the end. At that time. The time of the end. Um... What happens in verse 1 to 3? Let's just fly through it. Look with me together at verse 1 to 3. So we've got Michael, uh, the great prince who protects your people. We've met him before in Daniel. He's always doing the same thing, always protecting God's people. That's his constant task. Even uh, in the New Testament, whenever he's referenced, that's what he's doing, fighting for God's people. So Michael arises at this time. What happens next? There is a great time of distress, untold of never before seen distress but at that very same time as distress there's deliverance these people whose names are found written in the book are delivered and at that same moment the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth that's the dead awake and they're raised to life and then they're judged so we've got the resurrection in this passage the resurrection is not a an peculiar topic that just crops up once or twice in the Bible. Uh, certainly this is possibly the most explicit explanation of the, re- of the resurrection in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament the resurrection is massive. Paul is obsessed, Jesus talks about it as we've seen, and then in Revelation we get even more insight as to what the resurrection looks like. So the Bible's pretty plain about what's going to happen to this earth. It's going to come to an end. There is going to be an end day, and at that end there's going to be judgment for the living And the dead are going to be raised to that very same judgment, split between two options. And for me, I'm reading this section as one moment 
um, this all seems to stack on top of itself as just one instant. There's this one moment where the dead are raised and everybody's judged and time comes to a close. And it seems to be in the New Testament that that's synonymous with the return of Jesus. The end time, the moment that the dead are raised, is the very return of Christ to this earth. Um, We see in verse 1 this time of great distress. Certainly in the last few weeks, and even in what we read in uh, Matthew, before the return of Christ, there seems to be this increase, this surge in suffering for the church of God, and increasing distress. That's there, I think, in verse 7, with the abomination. And we certainly saw it last week that persecution for God's people seems to be prevalent between his two comings and increased before his final coming. But I don't think that alone is the great distress of verse 1. I think maybe it's included, but great, the great distress of verse 1 seems to be the moment of judgment. The actual moment of Christ's return seems to be the moment of distress. Look at how it's stacked on top of each other. At the time of distress... At that time, the people are delivered. At that time, the multitudes are raised. The moment of the resurrection of the dead and of judgment, the moment of Christ's return, is a harrowing one. That is a great distress. Even as we read before in Matthew, described as a day of mourning. The nations will mourn at his coming. Because he comes, as we see in verse 2, bringing with him judgment, shame, everlasting contempt upon the peoples of the earth. This is a harrowing scene in some senses. And that is exactly what God's people are delivered from. I think we're going to see in a minute that the, the people whose name's written in the book is Christians. And that actually Christians are spared from the judgment. I think about the uh, end of 1 Thessalonians, that kind of saved from that day. Actually, that's the ultimate deliverance. Yes, at the moment of Christ's return, God's people are delivered from suffering and persecution of earthly kinds. But God's people are delivered and saved from judgment. I think that's the great distress of verse 1 that God's people are spared from. So here's this moment of deliverance, of resurrection, all wrapped up in Jesus' return, bringing judgment and deliverance for God's people. Uh, They are delivered, as we see, to everlasting life, uh, which is amazing. Spared from judgment, taken to everlasting life. Um, As we see plainly, tied up with this moment of judgment is the resurrection of the dead. This is a big, big idea. Uh, We see it described in verse 2 as the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth. In Matthew, it was those who were in the tomb are awakened, raised again to life. And as they're raised, they are split between two groups. Uh, There's a clear split there, isn't there, between the wise who shine forever, who receive everlasting life, and those who receive shame and everlasting contempt at the resurrection, there is this great separation. Uh, Jesus, again, talking in John 5, says it this way, talking again about the end times. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. You see the split? Rise to live, rise to be condemned. See it really clearly in verse 2 and 3. Rising to everlasting life, rising to everlasting contempt. And then again you can see it if you look with me in verse 10. There's the many who are purified and made spotless, but the wicked carrying on being wicked, not understanding. And then back to the wise who do understand. There is this separation and distinction at the return of Christ between the wicked and the wise. 
the wise through their understanding made spotless. They get to enter into eternal life and then they become all shiny. The shining of verse 3, they get made to glow. Whereas the wicked don't understand. And seemingly in their failure to understand, they face shame and everlasting contempt. Two questions spring to my mind when I think about that. Question number one, how is it that people are wicked and what if they fail to understand? Question number two, how is it that people are wise? And what is this thing that they've understood that allows them to be made pure, spared from this judgment? And more than pure, they're made to shine. What's this knowledge that these people seem to understand? So, first question, how are people wicked? What if they failed to understand? Uh, as we sung before and as the Bible is playing throughout, we believe in a God who made all things. And he didn't just make them for the sake of making them. He made them for his own glory. And at the center of his creation, he made man and woman in his own image to know and enjoy and glorify him. That's why he made all things. Um, to love him as their life giver and their love. And as we can read in the Bible, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, rebelled against that purpose. They turned away from what they were made for and went after what God had told them not to do. And so in that rebellion, they broke the goodness, the perfection, the glorifying nature of that creation. And so now nothing exists as it was meant to exist. And this is true of you. Now you're a sinner. You constantly prefer things God made rather than the God who made them. That's the state we're all in, isn't it? I wouldn't have to poke around in anyone's life to find that out to be true. It's just obvious. In many and varied ways, we prefer the things that God made than him who made them. And that very brokenness, that very preferring, is what makes us sinners. That's our wickedness. We don't do what we're made to do. That's how these people who are defined as wicked have been wicked. They've not understood That there is a God who is to be feared, who is to be upheld, who is to be praised and enjoyed above all things. And they've continued in the wickedness of loving creation rather than creator. They've failed to enjoy God as they ought. So that's their wickedness. And God is not okay with wickedness. He's a holy God. And so he is committed to his good purpose for creation. And so his plan is to make all things new and good and right and good glorious again so that they bring worship to him and as a result of that he's going to get rid of all evil that's what we're seeing happening in verses one and two this kind of purging of all wickedness in what God is trying to achieve wickedness has no place it's not coming in to God's new creation what he's achieving and so he judges and destroys all of those who've done what is plainly wrong preferring created to creator that's their wickedness But as we can see in Daniel 12, not all of us, though we all deserve it, we've all been wicked in that same way, are caught up in that condemnation. Actually, some are not destroyed. And more than not destroyed, we get these people being made shiny. So how does that come about? To understand this, we've got to understand why Jesus came the first time. So we're looking at the second coming of Jesus tonight, but we've got to understand the first coming of Jesus when he came 2,000 years ago, what he did. Uh, Jesus, when he lived on earth, lived sinlessly. He always worshipped and loved and enjoyed God above all things. And as the Son of God himself, he is not deserving of that death. In fact, he is deserving of the everlasting life. But in his great love for us, he chose to take upon himself the judgment we have ensued by our wickedness. 
So Jesus takes the shame and contempt of verse 1 and 2. Upon himself on the cross, he chooses to die for sinners and their sins, takes their punishment, takes the contempt. And in doing that, that's how people get delivered. We are spared from that judgment because someone took that judgment. God isn't unjust and just lets it go. He's totally just and punishes it in Jesus. That's how people are delivered, spared from the judgment because Jesus was judged. They share in the benefits of his death. But how is it that they get shiny? I'm obsessed with this shininess. How are these people made to glow like the brightness of the heavens? That is also tied up with Jesus' first coming. But not with his death on the cross, but with what happened three days later that we celebrate every Easter Sunday and truthfully every day. Jesus came back from the dead. This is how we understand how people are made shiny. We get to share in his resurrection. Jesus came back from the dead and not just to a normal life, but to an elevated life, to a glorious body that was able to do amazing things that's unperishing, that's eternal, that's wonderful, that's righteous sinless and so his offer is not just pardon in sharing with his death but actually resurrection and life in sharing in his resurrection and life that's what we believe in we get this glory and this everlasting life and that very glory and everlasting life that these people are raised to is the glory and everlasting life of the person who was first raised Jesus Christ Resurrection and life is in him. He says this himself in John 11. I am, this is Jesus speaking, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. That's the claim of Jesus. If there's anyone going to be raised to life, they're raised in him. That's the how of people get to share in this everlasting life. And the nature of the everlasting life which we Christians await is the same as his everlasting life. We are made to be like him. This is the shininess that happens. We are raised to the glorious state to which he was raised. We rise as righteous, shiny, glowing with the glory of the heavens kind of people because our Savior Jesus makes us like he is. The resurrection we enter is his resurrection. So that's how people become wise and get to be made pure and made shiny. They understand what Jesus has done that there is a God who is to be feared above all things and they enter into that with him. We are looking forward to Christians, bodies, physical bodies. Jesus was raised bodily. He had breakfast. Resurrected body walking around had breakfast. We are going to be raised bodily, physically, on that day, at the day of his coming, to bodies that are eternal, that have no more sin in their very members, bodies that don't age. Who's looking forward to that one? Bodies that are splendid. We Christians hope in the day when our bodies are made to glow with the righteousness of Christ. Made splendid. This is our hope, Christians. I asked you before what you were hoping in, the kind of hope that keeps you going. This is it. We look forward to a day when we are raised bodily. Our hope, Christians, is not just that one day our souls will depart and be with Christ, though that would be better by far. Our hope is better than that. I'm saying that with a very high view of that moment. That is better by far. That's glorious. But our hope is even better. Our hope is new bodies and a new creation where God himself dwells. We'll have bodies that are fit for him to be with us. The resurrection's physical and it's coming. Christians, this is your hope. 
this is your hope. Daniel 12 smashes this reality right into our views, doesn't it? Comes right into the front view mirror. Bam, there it is. You are going to be raised bodily to the likeness of Jesus if you're a Christian. This is coming to all who trust in Christ. That's the group that are in the book of life. Believers, Christians, those who've depended on Jesus in his death and resurrection. Uh, 1 John 3 sums this up really well for it, doesn't it? We will be like him because we shall see him as he is. The moment of our transformation is the end of all days when we meet Jesus. As creation is judged and damned, we are spared and made to shine. That's our hope. It's a good hope. It's a really good hope. Uh, We know and experience this in part now. We're already justified, made legally righteous. We're being sanctified slowly. We're joyful in Jesus partly now. But actually, completion is coming. Consummation is coming. This is not it. This is not it. This physical body, Martin Smith right here tonight, it's not it. I'm looking forward to something better when this body is raised to a newness of life, the likes of which has only been seen in the face of Jesus. This is where we should place our hope. And actually, this is where, if we hope in it, we're doing the right thing. We said before that we hope in things, hoping that they give us joy, satisfaction, happiness. For the Christian, Daniel 12 gives us a hope that is joy and satisfaction and happiness forever. That's Christian hope. Live for it. So holding this is always going to give us an advantage in life. Puts things in perspective all the way through our lives. Now it's not to say that earthly joys are bad. They're okay. They're okay. They're not as good as this. They're not ultimate. You can still look forward to Saturday. I'm still looking forward to tomorrow. Might go out on the bike. Might even buy a croissant. What a hypocrite. But it's not ultimate. Christians, this is the hope that we should own and that we should offer. Claim this, Christians. This is what you're looking forward to. This has seemed to have slipped out of Christian thinking and, to- and thought. We stopped talking about heaven, new heavens and new earth. I don't know why. This is our gospel. This is what it's all about. This is where it's ultimate. This is what goes on forever and ever. This is temporary. This is temporary. It's going to be forever and it's going to be glorious. This is what we own and it's also what we should offer. Did you see that in verse 3? The wise shall shine. And then following on for that, look again with me at verse 3. And those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Actually, as Christians, we own this hope. We enjoy this hope. But we've got to offer this hope. Think about the gospel we offer. We offer to people who only deserve eternal condemnation. We offer them eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the hope that we offer. We say Jesus takes your death and he raises you to a life you can't even imagine. That's what we offer when we share the gospel with people. This isn't a flimsy hope. This isn't, oh, life with Jesus might be a little bit better now. Fingers crossed. It's not the gospel. The gospel is you'll be raised bodily with Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. Amazing. And actually, there is reward for those who share the gospel. This is what we're called to do. Jesus left us with those words. Go, make disciples. And for those who do, you see this shining all the brighter as those who've led others to to go from wickedness to wisdom, from contempt to shining bright like the stars of heaven. 
This is what we own. This is what we offer. Daniel 12 makes me very joyful. I don't know if you picked that up. I love this chapter. It's amazing. This is joy to know that this is coming. It's joy. It's all my joy. I don't think we've understood Daniel 12. I don't think you've got Daniel 12 until you feel joy in it and until you feel sadness in it. There are those who will not experience the everlasting life which we have made our joy and our hope, which we will make our home forever. They're not going to get it. There's those who still face everlasting contempt. Uh, the Westminster Confession, which is a wonderful document, the Catechism, sorry, the Shorter Catechism, sums up, Christians, what we get in the resurrection beautifully. Question 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Christians, that's our hope. That's our hope. That's the benefit of the resurrection for the Christian. So serious and important is this message that Daniel's been given this vision of the end of all things and the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of all that he's told in verse 4 if we read again but you Daniel roll up and seal the words of the scroll that's the, the whole vision he's had until the time of the end now this isn't saying close it up make sure no one reads it whatever you do make sure no one understands it that's not what it's saying here the whole idea of rolling up and sealing is the preservation of this document that it might be authentic and, and we can authenticate its truth that we might be able to pass it on from generation to generation unchanged, unedited this is him saying rubber stamp this make sure no one changes it make sure it exists forever Don't, it's not the call to hide it away and make it secret it's the call to make sure that publicly it can be understood perfectly preserved that's what a sealed document does so important is that he's, re- he's reminded of it in verse 9 seal it up make sure it's available. And I think that's put there in verse 4 to compare with these people who are just going here and there to increase in knowledge. God's given his sealed up, certified, authenticated word for people to find wisdom and so be able to shine bright forever. I think that's a comparison of verse 4. Verses 5 to 13 then center around these two questions. The vision kind of moves on. It's still the same chapter, still the same book, but you see that shifting, verse 5, then I looked. And he goes back to visions again of two people stood on either side of a river, one on each bank, and another one seemingly floating above the waters. And the section focuses itself around two questions. First question, how long? Verse 6, one of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the water of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Uh, astonishing could be translated uh, unheard of things. It's not that they're astonishing, it's unheard of. This is unbelievable. So the first question comes, how long? And we should take the answer incredibly seriously because of what happens in verse 7. This man in linen who's above the waters lifts his right hand and his left. Now what do you usually do when you swear an oath? One hand. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. That's what you do when you swear an Sorry enough, you raise one hand. And here this man raises both hands and swears by the him who lives forever, the name of the Most High. This is a serious, serious statement. This is true. This is trustworthy. And here's how he answers, having sworn by him who lives forever. 
verse 7, halfway through. It will be for a time, times, and half a time, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. So, the answer given uses that phrase which we've come across before in Daniel, time, times, and half a time, which literally means three and a half times. And Liam really helpfully unpacked this for us a few weeks ago and said that in the Bible, the perfect number is seven. And so three and a half is literally half of completion. It doesn't even make it to completion. So what we can understand by this time, times, and half of times is it's finite. Don't worry. This age, which might include suffering for the church, will not continue forever. Actually, it will almost be like it's cut short. It doesn't even make it to completion. The end is closing. It's a big reality for us to remember. This is not it. And it's especially vital to remember if you're involved in the second statement, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken. It seems that before the end, God's church is so persecuted, so devastated. But the promise is there, certainly. Uh, This is going to be a comfort to Daniel's people, the people this was originally written to, who are going to suffer in the next few years. This is a huge comfort to know, actually, time's limited. Time's limited. Even when it seems like we're at our lowest, even when it seems like we're crushed and defeated, actually, that's when the end's going to come. This is not ultimate. Suffering is not ultimate. And that's even what we see in verse 11, uh, where it uses these numbers of days. Uh, I'm sure for Daniel, he probably understood the abomination that causes desolation to be Antiochus Epiphanes, who we've met a few times. But I think we see even in Jesus quoting it in Matthew 24, uh, if it is about Antiochus Epiphanes, he's almost a type for worse things to come for the Antichrist we hear of in the New Testament, and maybe even a final Antichrist. Um, But the message is plain. For those who persevere through those times, who make it to the end, to the end of the time, times, and half a time, there's blessing. See that in verse 12? Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of those short days after. Blessed is that one who presses on, who keeps going, who makes it to the end. So the reminder is there for those who suffer. Blessing awaits. Glory is coming. Jesus is coming. The bridegroom is coming. Glory awaits. And that glory for Daniel and the people in his time who are about to suffer, for us as Christians who may suffer, for the suffering church now, the suffering church to come, offers a huge consolation. The sufferings we face now are incredibly small compared to the eternal weight of glory that is coming for those who trust and hold out to the end in Christ. Um, Suffering is something we should probably expect. Uh, We don't seem to suffer in terms of a hard, hard persecution in this country at this time severely, though others of our brothers and sisters across the world plainly do. Uh, It is important, I think, for us to remember that it wasn't so long ago in Scotland there was persecution for the saints. And the story is, is, this is what Daniel 12 does for the suffering Christian. The story is told of uh, two young Scotsmen. This is in Scotland, 1540. Their names were Alexander Kennedy and Jerome Russell. And they were to be burned at the stake, burned alive for faith in Jesus. For believing in Jesus, they were going to be burned alive till the point of death. Here's what one of them, Russell, said to his friend Kennedy as they walked towards it 
Russell looked over and he, he saw some signs of depression in his companion, not unsurprisingly. This is what he said to hearten him. This is Christian hope. This is Daniel 12 applied. As a walking towards death. Brother, fear not. Greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. The pain we are to suffer is short, shall be light. But our joy and consolation shall never have end. Let us therefore strive to enter into our master and savior by the same straight way which he has trod before us. Death cannot destroy us, for it is already destroyed by him for whose sake we suffer. That's Christian hope in suffering. That's perspective of the eternal weight of glory that is to come. When horror comes, church, we need to hold on to the hope that is coming. It's beautiful, that story, isn't it? I find it really moving. I'm glad I read it five times this week because I cried then and I've not cried now. So in a way, that story is about as much as Daniel gets to his question. He asks his question, doesn't he? Verse 8, what will be the outcome of these things? He doesn't really get answered. He kind of gets reminded. The book has been sealed up. You've got the word. Message is complete, Daniel. What are you looking for? told you. Reminds him again of those who are going to be purified. The wicked are going to continue to be wicked. The wise will understand. He reminds him to press on in verses 11 and 12. Blessed is the one. And then he closes in verse 13 with something that sums up what we've been saying really concisely. As for you, that's Daniel. Read with me verse 13. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest. And at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Three R words there. If you would remember three words tonight. Rest, rise, receive. That is the eternal weighty truth for everybody in this room, everybody in this world. Going to rest, going to rise, and going to receive. Rest. Go on your way till your end, Daniel. He's going to die. Most of us, unless Jesus comes back beforehand, all of us are going to die. We're going to rest. We're going to be like those of verse 2. We're going to be made to sleep in, uh, in the dust of the earth. But the reality is, for all, we're going to rise. We are going to rise. The resurrection is certain. Jesus will come back. People will be raised. And at that resurrection, and for all time after it, we receive. We rest. We rise. We receive. And we either receive the resurrection of the life with Jesus or the resurrection of condemnation outside of Jesus. Christians, in good time and bad time, this is our hope. It's our comfort. It should be our goal. Keep this in view. We wait one day to be like our resurrected Savior Jesus, to be with him, to enjoy him forever. That's our hope. We're going to live where he lives, where he dwells. That's what awaits us. That's our glorious message, which we own and we offer. If, you, if you're struggling tonight with having your vision blocked by the coin in front of the eye, by the present realities, by the busyness of life, by maybe the little hopes that we cling on to, if they're clouding your vision, I think uh, you need to think about how you strip that back. We've done some application questions on the back of your sheets. Make the most of that this week. There's three, one for every two days and some prayer points. Use that. Use the tweets. Process this book. And even just remember those three words. 
Actually, in all moments of my life, those three words are true. I'm going to rest. I'm going to rise. I'm going to receive. That is true always. If you're not a Christian here tonight, here's the offer of Jesus. He offers to take away what you deserve, everlasting contempt, and give you everlasting life in his likeness. He offers that now in your life you can be free from the burden of your sin and look forward to a day when you are totally free from sin and dwell with him and do what you were made for. Glorify him, enjoy him forever. That's the offer of Jesus. You can rest, rise and receive that sort of inheritance. But if you don't receive Christ, you will rest, you will die and you will rise on that last day. And on that last day, shame and everlasting contempt turn to Christ if you've not yet turned to Christ this is the offer we have on the table so the book of Daniel then has had all sorts in it but it actually ends pointing us to Jesus to the day that we rise and receive our inheritance with him that's where the book closes calling us to change how we live now knowing that that is coming you're going to rest you're going to rise and you're going to receive. Let's pray together.